This morning's reading will come out of Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 14 through 21. Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray for grace today to be able to know how to live out this text that we have just read, to know how we as your children, having heard and received the promises of grace, um, are now called to live out these promises by loving people, loving those whom uh, may never love us back, love those whose approval we can't seem to earn, and to do so in a way that brings you glory and honor. We need help today, Lord, because this is a hard passage, requires us to do hard things, and were it not for your spirit, it would be absolutely impossible. And so we ask for your help today to know how to apply this entire series to people or individuals whose approval we want, but we just seem, just can't seem to get. So help us, Lord. Give us insight from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During my senior year of college, I was thrilled because I had an internship at a really wonderful church in the area. And I was going to hang around one of the best pastors in the area, be able to see kind of the counseling ministry of that church ministry. And my role was to be a a youth ministry intern. And I was looking forward to this uh, internship all summer with the prospect of starting it in the fall. The leadership team was incredible. The church was doing amazing things. And I was going to be able to try and provide some leadership to youth ministry. But there was one huge problem, one that I learned about a month after I started in this role, and that was that the elder in charge of youth ministry didn't want an intern at all. In fact, it felt like we were in competition, and this was supposed to be ministry. This was supposed to be church. I couldn't figure out what I had done. Tried to do things the way that he wanted me to do them, tried to do this and that, but it just didn't seem to work. And I found myself waking up on Sunday mornings, first thought on my head would be, 
What's he going to think about what I'm saying in my lesson today? What's he going to think about how I interact with our leadership team? What's he going to think about what I have on or, or who I'm talking with? Much to my surprise, I began to feel the same thing towards him that I felt towards the student body two years earlier. Remember, at the very beginning of this series, I mentioned that phrase that my speech coach gave me, which was, Mark, when you live your life in light of what other people think of you, you end up hating them. These feelings are coming up. I remember, in fact, one time we went on a youth ministry activity. We didn't have a church bus or anything, so all the sponsors drove their own vehicles. And as I was getting into my car and Sarah was getting into the driver or the passenger seat, um, some students were coming over to get into our car, and I was thrilled because they were going to go ride with us. And then this elder and his wife said, Hey, come ride with us. And the students looked at us, turned, and went and rode in their van. And we rode to the youth activity all alone. I'm traveling in this car thinking... You know, I, I was hoping that when I got out of high school, I wouldn't have to deal with this stuff anymore. And here we are, and this is supposed to be church ministry. And it, it just was a sick, terrible feeling of, how, how am I going to do this? Well, eventually we sat down with the senior pastor and began talking things out and tried to just share and talk things through. But the bottom line was he didn't want me there. And so I had to figure out how to work with someone who didn't like me, didn't want me, and not let it control me. So over the next nine months, I tried to be kind to the elder and his wife. I tried to understand where they were coming from. I tried to minimize the things that kind of bugged him or frustrated him. I, I tried to love them as, as, as best as I could. Now, you're probably expecting some sort of spiritualized solution to the story. Like, we became best friends, and we had backyard barbecues every other Friday, and our kids grew up together, and, and he's in this church, and there he is, and that. <laughs> But the reality is that is exactly what didn't happen. For nine months, it was agonizing, trying to figure out, what do I do and how do I deal with this? And for an entire year, things were tense, they were awkward. Every Sunday, I'd have to fight wrong thoughts. I'd have to think right. And some Sundays I'd win and some days I'd lose. And I learned that dealing with the problem of approval is often a rugged daily fight to cling to the promises of God's Word. What I learned is this, that living on gospel promises frees me to love people even if they don't love me back. Today we're going to bring this um, series to close, this Approval Junkie series, and trying to wrestle with How do we deal with this issue of the fear of man? And we've been exploring this for three weeks, looking first at the nature of the trap of approval from Proverbs 29. The fear of man lays a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. And then we saw the the latent idol of approval from Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. And then last week we looked from Galatians 2 at the way in which the gospel liberates us to live by promise, not performance. That's a watershed issue. Beautiful thought, that I live by the promise of what God says about me, not my performance. So today, we're going to wrap all of this up and help you see where these promises should then lead you. And the sum total of what I'm going to say today is that the the promises of God essentially free me 
in order to love people who might not or won't love me back. And in so doing, liberates you. So the answer to the fear of man is not only fearing and loving God, but also by treasuring the promises of God, it leads to love. So the question is, if you've got somebody in your life where it just seems as though you cannot get them to like you or to approve of you, or you live in fear of what they think of you, what do you do with people like that? The answer, I think from the scripture, is you love them. So the solution, friends, to the fear of man is not a new chip on your shoulder. Oh, who cares what they think of me? Or just avoid all the people who don't like you and just hang around people who do. That's a pretty small group anyways. But anyways, um, the reality is, is the gospel and the promise of the gospel frees you to love and to give your life and to be kind and to be generous even if they won't be generous or kind or loving in return. So I don't believe that you fully conquer the fear of man until you turn your fear of man into fear of God and love for others. And when we do this, here's the thing, God is glorified. He sees every time when you're kind to someone and they're not kind back. When we do this, we give God what he deserves, glory. So instead of using people to get what I want, I'm loving people in order to give what God, to give God what He deserves. So we're talking about promise-rooted love. We're in Romans chapter 12, and this is this chapter is one of the most important chapters in the Bible because it is here that the Apostle Paul begins in the book of Romans to apply eleven chapters of unbelievable doctrine. And if you were to study out the book of Romans, you would find that that Paul gives some stunning passages that are that are loaded with rich, deep, and powerful doctrine. And it's through 11 chapters in the book of Romans that Paul talks about the grand redemptive plan of God where he wants to save helpless sinners by granting them forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he frees them to be different kinds of people. Listen to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not guilty. You've been declared righteous. But the question is, so then what do you do with that? Or take Romans 8.37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. These are great and compelling promises. If you have your Bible, look at Romans 11 and verse 33. This sets up our chapter Paul ends this doctrinal section by almost running out of words, trying to capture what's going on inside of his heart as he's considered the beauty of this redemption. Here's what it says. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? Meaning, everything you have is a gift from God. Everything. Everything you've got in life only came because God gave it to you and therefore that that changes how you see life. That he ends this way, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's that God is the center of the universe and everything in life only makes sense when he's at the center, including how you handle the issue of the fear of man. 
And then from that base, Paul then goes into Romans 12 with an appeal to live out this reality of this grace gift that God has given. And he begins in verse 1 this way. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, in light of all the things that I've told you about the beauty and the doctrine of the way in which God has infinitely poured out His grace upon you, therefore be different than people around you. And so chapter 12 is a beautiful application chapter talking about how you live out the gospel. And then, after talking about living in this present body as a sacrifice, look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So what God has said to us through Paul in 11 chapters, he says now should cause you to see your body as a living sacrifice, should cause you to think differently about yourself. And then he gets to verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then we come to verse 14, where Paul drives home this point of living out the grace of God or living out the promises of God in a whole new way. And the first thing that we see here is that he calls us to have a different mindset toward others and ourselves. Notice notice the list. It's a stunning list. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Look at verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Associate with the the, the humble. Never be conceited. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then I love verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you. That's God's grace right there. He he knows who your family is, okay? He, He knows that. Okay? And let's just be honest, there's elements of dysfunction in every family, okay? And if you're like, what? That means it's you, okay? So, all right? so there are elements of dysfunction. So as much as it, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That, that, what is God saying here? He's saying that there needs to be a different mindset toward others and ourselves. That, that love rejoices with those who rejoice. Love weeps with those who weep. It desires to be unified with others. It, to the best of its ability, it, it longs to be at peace with people. That's, that's different than how the world looks at life. And that's different how you should look at life if you're a follower of Christ because the reality of the gospel and the promises that God has given you has changed the orientation of what you see about yourself and others. And therefore, the beautiful thing that happens in promise-rooted love is that God grants you a different mindset towards people around you. This is the heart of Christianity. This is where real Christianity comes out, where the fear and love of God eclipses love for ourselves, and we are able to give ourselves, as you'll see in a moment, to other people in a way that doesn't make sense to the world. Secondly, 
we see that we are to show grace in pain. If you want to see how you defeat the fear of man, you, you have to deal carefully and thoughtfully with verses like verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's, that is a huge verse. I mean, can you imagine? Someone's persecuting you. They're, they're putting you under their thumb. They're making things difficult, hard, even murdering your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet Paul is calling on the church to bless those who persecute you. Not just be silent, not just willingly accept it, but to bless those. And to bless those who curse you. The reality is, is most of us don't live this way. And who can blame us? Because this is not an easy path to follow. But in the Spirit, with the Spirit of God resting upon us, if you were able in the midst of the press of hardship to be able to bless and not curse, to be able to love and not hate, God can use you in unbelievable ways. Because hard circumstances, and listen, hard people, are actually gospel promise opportunities. There are people in your life who are hard to love. People whose approval you can't earn. You can't say enough. No matter what you do, it's like they don't like you. They don't want to be around you. They don't want to love you. And some people you can't get away from. They aren't friends. Maybe they're family or there's a neighbor and he or she won't move. Right? And you're stuck. And you've got to figure out, how do I love this guy next door to me? The message of these five verses is that people who fear God, trust God, and have faith in God live radically different lives. So much so that Paul is indicating here that the world would look at your life and go, what motivates you? And the answer is Jesus. We're called to bless those who mistreat us, verse 14. We're called to not repay evil for evil. We are called in verse 17 to... Do what is right in the eyes of others. And we're called in verse 19 to rely on God's ability to be the judge. This is a crazy way to live. This is crazy. This is not the normal way that you live. The normal way that you live is what happened to me inside of my heart while we're driving on Friday. There are family in a van. We're heading south of Indianapolis and kind of tight traffic between a couple semis. And there's a, a little vehicle off to my right. And I'm coming up and I'm thinking, this guy... He wants in this space, and I'm trying to give him enough space with there's someone behind me. And all of a sudden, without a blinker or anything, he just whoop, pulls in. And, and I mean, it, it was like three feet off of my front bumper. We're clipping along at about 60 miles an hour, and I, I am mad. I mean, it was close. Got my whole family here. I had to hit the brakes. And so I, I hit my horn, you know, my 99 town and country. You know, I needed like one of those or something, but and that was like, ah, oh, so lame. That didn't express what I felt <laughs> at all. So we're traveling along, and he came over to the other side. And so I was like, Bruh. actually, the car was like, you know. And my wife was like, what are you doing? And I was like, um, I was thinking, like, what, what am I doing here? And, 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 and you know what I was doing? I was gonna, I said, I was gonna pull up next to him, and I was gonna look at him. That's what I was gonna do. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to look at him. I was going to go, you know, I was going to give him the look. That'll show him, right? I'm sure that'll change his behavior. I couldn't catch up with him. So gratefully I backed off and, and, and that's normal, right? That's normal. What's not normal is to go, oh no, you have the lane. You go ahead. 
bless you. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's not normal. And if you live a life like that, where you, you bless those who persecute you or bless those who curse you, you will be unbelievably different than our culture. And here's what I'm calling you to do today. With the people that are hard to love in your world, I'm asking you, pleading with you, calling for you to be different than most people in our society. So if you thought that this series was going to end with you feeling great because now you don't have to worry what people think of you, that's true. But what I want you to understand that the reason why you've been given these precious promises is not just to make you safe and isolated. Oh, no, no. It's to make you safe so you can do things that are risky. Verse 21, we are called to overcome evil with good. That's crazy. If that wasn't lived out in the life of Christ, we'd think that's impossible. Overcome evil with good. If you put this together, you'll see very clearly that the hope of the gospel promise is not meant to be something that simply gives you comfort and assurance. But rather, the promise of the gospel is meant, listen, to give you courage and power to do things you'd never do on your own. Like love people that will never love you back. Or love people that are really hard to love. Or to love people that when they open their mouth, you're just like, oh, I just wish they'd be quiet. To love people like that, you need gospel-rooted love. Paul echoes the words of Jesus. Listen, uh, take your Bible, go to Matthew 5 and verse 44. What, What Paul is telling us here in Romans 12 is that we're to put on love towards people who do not love us. Particularly, he instructs believers to respond to painful people with Christ-like love. Let me be clear. I'm calling you today to love hard people with Christ-like love. Now, you're going to have to figure out how to work that out. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But I want you to see the orientation of Jesus even in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. He says this, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Hear that. So if you just love people who love you, big deal. Anybody can do that. Anybody can live their life in light of what other people think of them, hate them, or say, who cares what they think of me, and never go back in. Anybody can do that. But it takes a follower of Jesus who deals with the pain of why can I never earn their approval and they still go back in and they're loving and they're kind and they're gracious and they do it over and over and over and over. Jesus links loving enemies to blessing them, doing good to them, and praying for them. He even says that this action is a key characteristic of the one who is a son of God. So loving those who love us shows nothing. But loving those who do not love us makes the heart of Christ within us clear. And then he says, since God is kind and and gracious to the unthankful and evil, 
we are to be kind to the unthankful and evil as well. In other words, the sun rose today on righteous people in Indianapolis and the same sun rose on unrighteous people and God was gracious and merciful to them. He was gracious and merciful to you this morning. Every thought you've had this morning has been empowered by a brain that God made work. The fact that you could get up this morning is a gift from Him. Even if you woke up this morning and went, oh, the fact that you can go, oh, it's a gift. Not a spiritual gift, but a gift from God that you have that ability. And without His grace, you would not have that. So God is kind and gracious to the unkind and the unthankful. In other words, God calls us to be like Him. So big deal if you can love people who like you. Anybody can do that. The real test of Christ-likeness is can you love people whose approval you really can't earn? So this is where the promises of God come in to play. The promises of God are the things that we live by faith in, and these help us for this battle, to love the hard people. I heard someone recently teaching on the armor of God and talking about the shield of faith. It was fascinating. The shield of faith was a full-body shield, not a little shield, but a full-body shield. And the purpose of that shield was not so you could sit way back in, 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 in the, the forces and just fire your arrows. No, this shield was given to those who were on the front line as they charged up close to the wall of, of the fortified city. Because as you got closer to the wall, guess what? They can throw everything at you now. Boulders and molten metal and arrows. And as you got closer, the bigger the shield is what you needed. And so the idea is that this shield of faith is not meant for you to hang on the back end of the forces. This shield, this large shield of faith in God's promises is meant so that when you charge into danger, you are protected in a maximum way. And let me give you another analogy. So the promises of God that we talked about last week, gospel promises, do you view those as a blankie or body armor? The difference is, a blankie is something my daughter takes up to her bedroom, and when she wants comfort, she just takes her blanket, and she goes lays on her bed, she's like, mm, mm. is that what Romans 8 to you is? Is that what it is to you? This comfort that just makes you feel good? Or is it this body armor that says, you know what? In all these things, we are more than conquerors, so let's go. As you're out in the car before a family gathering, and you're thinking about your relatives that are inside that house, and you're looking at that, you're looking at that house and you're like, I know what's going to happen in there. And you are, we are more than conquerors. You march your family into there in battle <laughs> with the promises of the body armor of God's word on your heart. And you are free to love. You're free to ask a friend a question that you really don't want to hear the answer to. You're free to compliment somebody even though you're worried they're going to get a big head about it. You're free to be kind to somebody and engage in conversation when you just really don't want to be there. And it's the beautiful reality that the promises of God's Word help us to overcome evil with good. Do you feel how much godliness this takes? Do you sense how much fear of God and trust in God and faith in God this kind of choice would be? God calls us to overcome the evil of the fear of man with good. He calls us to run to Him, run for safety in our relationship with Him, and then run to the people who are we are most afraid of. So living on gospel promises frees me to love people even if they don't love me back. So then the question is, alright, so how do we do this? Let me just be honest that some of you 
have very complicated situations with people in your life whose the fear of man has been a major issue for you with them, and you're going to have to figure out how God, by His Spirit, is going to apply this text. And it may be as as simple as beginning to pray for that person. That may be the first step of many for you. You're going to have to work this out, but here's how we start. First, by understanding that this is why God made me safe in Him. I've already said this in part, but we need just to be sure you understand this. The reason why you have gospel promises are not just for decorations on your comfortable house, in your comfortable house, or a blanket for you to comfort your heart. As comforting as those truths are, those truths were meant to free us to do what God wants us to do. They were meant so that when you're leaving your office after a very difficult day, or you're leaving your family after a very difficult conversation, that you are reminded that your identity and your value and the hope of who you are doesn't come from what they think of you, but it comes from what God thinks of you. But you can't let that promise create a new chip on your shoulder, but rather it frees you to say, God, it doesn't matter what they think of me, I did this to honor you. And when you love them and it's not returned, or you you love them and it's rejected, what keeps you going? What keeps you loving? Not the effect from them or the response from them. If you gauge your actions on their response, you give up. But instead, I do this because it magnifies and glorifies you. This is why God made us safe in Him. So I want everyone to think of one person in your life that it's hard for you to be around them or this approval thing is a big issue. Do you think, think of that person right now. Got their, got their face in your head? I know I just ruined your Sunday, but just, just, just got to go with me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to recognize that this is a person that you need to love. And it may begin... The first step may simply be by praying something like this. Lord, I realize that you not only want me to stop fearing this person, you actually want me to start loving them. For some of you, that's, that's a freaky thought. It may be that you just start praying for them. That in the context of your prayer life, you just ask God, would you bless so and so. And that's as far as you can go yet. That's, that's the first great step. But it may be that God wants you to take another step. And you may need to third, find creative ways to demonstrate love to this person. And I'm not asking you to wait until you feel love for them because that's not going to come. I'm asking you to act by faith. Faith in God's promise. And Lord, you call me to love them in spite of who they are and this approval thing. And I am free in you, so therefore I am free to be able to love them regardless of how they respond and find some creative ways to love them. I want to give you some examples because I don't want to over-spiritualize this in your mind. It's as simple as having a pleasant and welcoming face when you see him or her. That is a spiritual victory for some of you to walk into the office or into this church and you run into the person and rather like, hey, you know, you're like, hey, good to see you. And, and, And by even that demeanor that's changed, that's actually a way of loving that person by asking him or her a question about something that's important in his or her life. By paying a compliment to the person, seeking his or her input, finding a creative way to lighten his or her load. If if the person's kind of an authority figure in your life, tell them the honest truth. As you say, you know what, it's really hard for me to talk to you about this because what you think of me is really important to me. And you expose your heart. 
could be as simple as making it a point to sit by this person at lunch or invite him or her out for coffee. It could be that if it's a boss to say thank you for being my boss and express your gratitude, thanks for being so patient with me, even though you're really not that easy to get along with. But anyway, so you, you have this, all things going in your heart and you suppress those and instead you act in faith and you love the person. You defend her when people talk about her behind her back. You choose to be kind and gracious even when the person is not. So you've got to figure out what specific action step God might want you to take in the context of that particular relationship. But the point of all of this is that Jesus commands us to live lives that are different than how most people in the world live in regards to people who they don't think like them. And you do this not because it works. I'm not going to promise you that if you do this, your mom or your dad or your brother, your sister, or your coworker, or your friend is going to go, oh, wow, that was really nice, thanks for doing it. In all likelihood, it may not ever work, but you're not doing it because it works. You're doing it because it's right. Jesus calls us to love like he did. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So conquering the fear of man means that we commit ourselves to God with such abandonment that loving others, especially those whom we fear, is actually possible. Now here's one other application of this. It also means that we choose to sacrificially love people who will likely reject us. As I was preparing for this sermon, I I suddenly realized that this has huge implications for ministry, and in particular for missions. We were together at a staff retreat this week, and Pastor Nate Irwin, our pastor for global outreach, shared a story that I think captures an application of how all of this works out. It's the story of Tom Little, one of nine people who was killed in Afghanistan a few weeks ago on a medical mission, was killed by Taliban fighters when they discovered them. And I want you to hear his story and what's behind his actions. It's, It's a little long, but just listen. Tom was part of a medical team that was about to embark on a particularly difficult journey to bring eye, dental, and mother-child clinics to a very remote region of, 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 of Afghanistan. To avoid traveling through an area of heavy fighting, their route would involve hiking about 80 miles over 16,000 16, foot pass. The medical equipment would be brought into the valley by um, horse, but since the pass was still snowbound, it had to be lugged by hand to another set of animals on the other side. Libby, that's his wife, was not physically part of the team as she was in the U.S. awaiting the birth of the little's first grandchild. Yet every 12 hours she spoke with Tom via cell phone. She emailed regular updates to MedSend and others who were praying for the team. We rejoiced to read that the team made it over the pass into the village where they began conducting the clinics. Yet for the first three days, the weather was miserably cold and wet. Libby wrote, the villagers kindly opened their homes to them, but it was hard going on hundreds of patients each day who had walked such distances, had no shelter but trees, but the crowds kept coming. By the sixth and last day of clinics, the team was exhausted. Some of the doctors had spent long nights watching and caring for some very seriously ill patients. Yet they began their perilous return trip at 4 a.m. last Tuesday, facing a solid torrent of freezing rain above 13,000 feet with blinding snow at 16,000 feet. 
the most awful weather Tom had ever seen. The group dragged themselves to a shepherd's hut where they crammed together to keep warm. Their clothing and sleeping bags were soaked. They had given their dried beans and rice to the villagers, so they ate MREs, prepackaged high-calorie military food. After walking another day, they made it to their vehicles where the swollen river was impassable. They hoped that the river would go down by the next morning when they would rebuild the road and be on their way. After that, Libby did not hear from Tom again. What happened was... Someone who they had picked up along the road was a militant as they were walking or traveling on, in the vehicles. And he went out into the woods, found some folks who were either tracking the team. Um, a number of Taliban fighters came, pulled everyone out of the vehicles, and one at a time executed all nine of them. You might wonder what motivates this kind of self-sacrifice. What motivates this kind of love? Well, Nate read to us a newsletter where Tom Little was reflecting on this very passage. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The title of it is, When Things Aren't What They Ought to Be. Listen to what he says. The Greek word that is used for evil in this text is kakos, which is a very wide usage regarding all that is bad. Thayer's Greek lexicon, however, perhaps sums it up with the meaning that it's not as it ought to be. Perhaps this phrase points to the heart of what universal evil is all about, but at least it fits very neatly with the situation here in Afghanistan. Things certainly are not what they ought to be. There is an ugly war that is being waged in much of the country. Corruption is rampant within central government, and hopeless poverty is the norm for the multitudes of ordinary Afghans, while the few of, of few that are well-off routinely flout their often ill-begotten riches in ways that can only be considered distasteful. In addition, security, even within the capital city, is compromised as band of criminals roam the streets looking for murder or kidnap victims. Afghans have endured this threat for quite some time, but in the last months, in the past months, foreigners have become prime targets. Now listen carefully. We are tempted to respond to this unfortunate situation by words or acts of anger and revenge. It's easy to make the generalization that every unknown Afghan that we happen to meet may be the ones that are out to get us. Such a life of suspicion is good neither for us nor for the unfortunate folks that we daily happen to meet. In fact, just as Paul warned, we can easily be overcome with this evil that is around us and thus contribute to this kakos. Libby and I are learning now that it does take a conscious effort of prayer and action on a very personal level to reverse this process. The overcoming evil with good can take many forms at our workplaces with our neighbors or in the bazaar. It could be summed up, however, by both demonstrating in practical ways and or, if necessary, speaking about grace, justice, mercy, and agape-type love. Please pray that we will contribute to the good that we trust will eventually overcome the deep-seated cacos that exists in this place. And may He also use you for this purpose in your own places. It struck me. That if you don't love people with a freedom, regardless of whether or not they'll love you back, you'll never go and try and reach unreached peoples. You'll never evangelize. If in order for the person to hear the gospel has to want to hear the gospel, you will be a poor witness for Christ. You'll never go and serve the Lord in an area of an unreached people group. And you won't be able to dedicate yourself to ministry because much of what you do in the name of Christ is opposed, resisted, and rejected. And if the basis upon what you do, your base your ministry or your life is on the approval of other people, you will limit the scope of what God might be wanting to do in and through you. But if... 
If there was in your heart a desire to be like Tom Little and to love people who don't want to be loved, then the effect on the platform of your life and the gospel can be unbelievable in its scope and influence. Do you see the gospel good that can come from loving people on the promise of God's word, not your performance? One of my favorite scenes from The Passion of the Christ at the very end of the movie is when Jesus is on the cross, his bloody, painful body is hanging there, a priest mocks him, and yet he prays, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. And the thief to his left says to the priest as he walks by, See, even now he prays for you. We began this series with a quote from a college professor of mine, Mark, when you live your life in light of what other people think of you, you end up hating them. And I'd like to end this series with a very simple but compelling challenge, and it's this. When you live your life in light of gospel promises, you are free to love people, even hard or pe- hard people or people who don't want you to love them for the glory of God. This issue of being free of the approval of others is not only important for your own emotional security. Listen to me. It is important for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of your God. The fear of man lays a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is gloriously safe. Father in heaven, we ask you to take this entire series and this thought today that we are being called to love people who are hard and difficult, to be free from their approval, not just so we can be emotionally whole, but so that we can do things that make much of you and give you glory. And I pray, Lord, that each of us today would have a specific action step that you want us to take to be able to show us how to bless and not curse, how to be able to love people, how to be able to demonstrate the beauty of the security of the gospel in our hearts. God, give us help. Give us grace. There's hard people in our life, and yet you call us to love them. So help us to do so. Help us to be like you. And we ask this. In your name. Amen. Listen, there's some folks up here at the front afterwards. If you need someone to pray with you, we'd love to be able to minister to you in that way. All right, go love somebody. God bless you. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.